Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I was debating whether we would just do one psalm tonight, because Psalm 26 is a short psalm, and I thought we might do two psalms tonight, but Psalm 27 is a fairly lengthy psalm, and we could spend a whole evening on it. So I think we will just concentrate on Psalm 26 tonight, and if we just happen to get out a little early, as hot as it is, that's probably a good thing. So, In the early days here at GCA, I would share email with you all. Eventually, the email was so positive, and I consider myself very fortunate because people out there on the Internet do write to us collectively, and I'm the fortunate person who gets to read those emails. But it reached the point where when I was coming in with these emails, it sort of became self-serving, and so I stopped doing it. But I got an email this week that I do want to share with you because it is reacting to last week's teaching. And I should preface it by saying, I'm a doctrine wonk. I mean, I love Bible doctrine, which the word doctrine just means teaching, but these days it has taken on the connotation of the heavy teaching of the Bible, the more difficult teaching of the Bible, the more complicated teaching of the Bible. That seems to all fall under the heading of doctrine these days. And I love that stuff. I'm not afraid of anything the Bible says. And if the Bible says election, I say election. If the Bible says predestination, I say predestination. If the Bible says, as we saw this past Sunday, if it says eternal conscious torment, then I'm willing to say eternal conscious torment. I'm not afraid to say anything that's in the Bible, but sometimes when you concentrate as much on doctrine and sovereignty as we do here at GCA, there is always the fear that we might become the frozen chosen, that we might become so doctrinal that we lose the emotion of the Bible. And there is a tremendous amount of good and valuable and helpful emotion in the Bible, and I think we're seeing that now in the book of Psalms. We aren't even through the first book of the Psalms yet, and we've seen repetition of the same themes And one of those themes that we see repeatedly is David crying out to God because David is in some sort of trouble or pain or torment. And he's cornered by God. He's got nowhere else to go but to God. And by emphasizing that, we start to feel the emotion 
behind the things that David has written. Because just dry doctrine, just biblical teaching is, is of some value, but you're not getting a fully orbed biblical education if it is all just sitting in head knowledge. If it isn't also affecting your behavior, if it isn't also affecting your worldview, if it isn't also affecting your emotions, then you're not getting everything that the Bible has in it. And so I've been trying in teaching through these psalms to demonstrate some of that. And so I got this email this week that really touched my heart because every once in a while I wonder if there's any lasting value to the things I do here and the things that we say. And I put them out on the internet and they go out on the internet and do their thing, whatever that thing is. And then every once in a while I get emails like this. It's a very short email, but it is precisely and concisely why we're reading the Psalms right now. It says, Pastor Jim, we just finished listening to your exegesis from Psalm 25. We found it to be such an encouragement for us in this particular time. My wife is going through the pains of cancer treatment. It reminds me of Psalm 94 with an emphasis on verses 12 and 13. So again, my thanks to you and to GCA for going through the Bible verse by verse without any of the world's entertainment, especially in this current evil age, Maranatha. You don't get better emails than that. To know that the effort we're putting into this pays off in situations like that, where there is somebody who is struggling in life. And that's exactly what we were talking about in Psalm 25, that when you're going through the difficulties and the struggles of life, that God is right there in the midst of it. And I'm just so glad to know that anybody got that message, that anybody understood it and could see it from the pages of Scripture, could see it from David's own pen, and that it brought comfort to them as they're going through this hard time. That, my friends, is why we do what we do. I write all too frequently to folks and say, messages like yours make the effort worthwhile. And I've said that so frequently that I feel repetitious. I've said that so frequently that I feel repetitious. I feel repetition. Have I mentioned? Never mind. <laughs> but it's true. It's just notes of encouragement like that make the effort that we put into it, the effort of keeping the archive going, the effort of keeping the website going, even as dated as our website might look right now. We know that people are not coming to our website because it's such a spanky website. People aren't coming to the website so that they can see all the, the glitter and latest, greatest internet protocol stuff. It, it's, it's a dated website. They come there for the content because we don't have anything else. But it takes effort to keep it going. And when people write to me like that, it just touches my heart. 
so much, and it does make the effort worthwhile. Yes. Psalm 26. In several of these psalms that we have looked at so far, we have seen David start the psalm by describing his situation. And his situation, as often as not, is bad. He starts very few psalms with, everything's great today. He always seems to start his psalms with times of difficulty, times of trouble. And then midway through the psalm, he gets his theology straight. He thinks about who God is, what God is like, the promises God has made. And that is where he finds his comfort. That's where he finds his reassurance that he's going to be able to endure because he got his theology correct. That practice of getting your theology correct is what's known as orthodoxy. It just simply means that you are thinking theologically the way the Bible describes God. And so you are thinking about God in an orthodox or in a biblical way. But good orthodoxy, I continue to argue, leads to good orthopraxy, which means proper biblical behavior. And that's what David's going to talk about in this psalm. Yes, sometimes he gets scared. Yes, sometimes he has nowhere to go but God. And then he gets his mind right because he thinks theologically correctly about God. And then he finds comfort in that thinking. And so he is thinking more orthodox. This is one of the first places where we're going to see David just really spell out that that orthodox thinking has led him to behavior that is conformed to what he believes. Now, we have to remember that David is also under the law of God. And the law of God is very works-oriented, obviously. And so David is going to talk about how he walks out his life. And the NASB translates it as he walks in his integrity. And then he's going to explain what he means by walking in his integrity. In fact, verse 1 says, vindicate me. O Yahweh, for I have walked in my integrity. And at the end of this psalm, verse 11, but as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. And in the middle, between those two verses, David's going to describe what he means by walking in his integrity. Now, it would be easy to think, well, then David is preaching some kind of works here because he's asking God to judge him, to size him up based on how he is behaving. But David always has this balance to his theology because the second half of verse 11 is, redeem me and be gracious to me. So he's not arguing for salvation by works. What he is arguing is, I trust you, Lord. I believe you, Lord. You have delivered me. You are my salvation. You are my fortress. You're my protection. I hide in you. I hide in your temple. That's where I would rather be. And I don't hang out with the sinners of this world. That's what he means by walking in his integrity. But that behavior is a result of having a proper theology, a proper understanding of who God is, what God is like, and the reality of the unbending nature of the law, 
And so he knows that he needs grace from God and that he needs redemption from God. Those are gifts from God that David understands that he actually needs, but he can also say to God, my life has changed. My behavior has changed. The way that I walk out my life is a reflection of the fact that I belong to you because there is a very evil world out there. In David's time, he's going to describe it, in our day today, there is a very evil world out there. And we who confess God, we who confess Jesus, we who profess Jesus, we ought to be different than the world. In fact, Jesus said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. And he said, the world is going to hate you because it hates me. So there needs to be a distinction between the world and those who belong to God. And that is what David is getting at here in this psalm. When he says, I'm walking in my integrity, he's saying, I'm walking different than the people he's going to describe, the sinners of this world, the scornful of this world. He said, I didn't walk like them. Instead, I take refuge in you. Therefore, once again, he's asking, deliver me. Provide for me yet again. I'm living for you. I am convinced that you are my only salvation. You are my only deliverance. But I need grace from you. And I need you to redeem me. That word means to buy me, to pay for me. I need you to do all that for me. And if you do, I walk like this. You got it? Psalm 26, verse 1, the first word is vindicate, vindicate me. That Hebrew word is the same word for judge. What he's saying is size me up, look at me, look at the behavior of my life right now, and judge for yourself, God, if I'm not telling you the truth. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in Yahweh without wavering. That means without my foot slipping. So in the very first verse, he has positioned himself as someone who trusts completely in Yahweh, completely, which is why he could say, my foot hasn't slipped. I am not wavering in my commitment to you. Therefore, because I'm committed to you, I am walking in my integrity and therefore, I ask you to judge between me and the world. Examine me, says verse 2. Examine me, O Yahweh. Try me. Test my mind and my heart. David seemed awfully confident at that point, because I'm not sure that I would beg God to try and test my mind and my heart. And yet, David is arguing that the way he lives is a demonstration of the proclivities of his heart and what he thinks about. So he can say, examine me, O Lord, and try me. Because he believes that once God does judge him and try him and test him, that the outcome is going to be positive for him if God indeed looks at his behavior. So test my mind and my heart. For your loving kindness is before my eyes. Perfect theological statement. He starts with, try me, test me, judge me, look at me, 
And oh yeah, your grace and loving kindness is what I'm constantly looking toward. It's always before me. I always look to your loving kindness and your grace. Now through your loving kindness and through your grace, now judge me. Well, you don't want God to judge you in his wrath. You don't want God to judge you in his anger. You don't want God to judge you according to your sinfulness. You want God to judge you according to his loving kindness. That's the standard you want to work with. Let's use your grace and your loving kindness as the filter through which you examine me. For your loving kindness is before my eyes. And I have walked in your truth. Again, David is under the law of God, the law of Moses. And so he is saying, I have walked according to your law. You have laid out your precepts, and that's how I conduct myself. And being the king of Israel, it was necessary for him to walk that way as a demonstration, as a guide for the whole rest of Israel, to be a judge in Israel, which is what a king was. He had to walk in the uprightness that God had already laid out in his law. So he's arguing that he's doing that. I have walked in your truth. And now he's going to describe what it is to walk in his integrity. I do not sit with deceitful men, nor will I go with pretenders. Deceitful men are liars. Usually when he uses this language of deceitfulness, he and Solomon both, it's in the context of people who are willing to lie for their own benefit. People who are willing to cheat you, people who have uneven scales, people who will take a bribe in order to judge a particular way. And so he says, I don't hang out with those guys. People who are liars, who are deceitful, who are willing to crush small, poor people for their own benefit. That's not my crowd. That's not who I hang out with. And nor will I go with pretenders. That word could just as easily have been rendered hypocrites. People who put on a good show, people who go to the temple, who might give their tithes, who might look like they bow and scrape and genuflect, but their heart isn't truly with God. He says, that's also not my crowd. I hang out with people who are truly sold out to you. I hang out with people who trust in you completely for their salvation, for their protection. And the pretenders, not my crowd. Verse 5, I hate the assembly of evildoers. Evildoers like to gather. To this very day, we still have a, a phrase, misery loves company. It means that the evildoers, the miserable of this world, they love to get together. Birds of a feather flock together. Why do those kind of phrases exist? Because it is a truism that people who have the same evil intent get together with each other. They assemble with each other because you don't seem quite so evil if you can look around at a room of other people who are just as evil as you. That's one of the vindications for so much of what's going on in the Western world right now, so many of the laws that are being passed, and so much of what's happening in the degradation of our society, the justification for it is, well, everybody's doing it. And now, as they make it legal, even more people are doing it. 
And so that is the assembly of the evildoers. And David says, I don't go there. I hate that assembly. And I will not sit with the, just the out and out wicked, the lawbreakers, the God haters. There are people in David's day and in our day, there are people who just naturally gravitate to assemblies of evildoers and wicked people. They prefer to hang out with that crowd. And as I said, I think it's because of the psychological value of saying, see, I, I'm not that bad because look around this room. There's a whole lot of people worse than me. I hate the assembly of the evildoers. And I will not sit with the wicked. And I shall wash my hands in innocence. The point of that phrase is, my hands are clean. When I wash my hands, I'm not trying to wash blood off them. I'm not trying to wash the dirt of this world off them. I wash my hands in innocence. And I will go about thine altar, O Lord. Before the priests could approach the altar, they had to go to the laver of cleansing, which was a large brass bowl that was shined so that you could see your reflection in it. And the priests had to wash themselves until their reflection looked clean before they could even walk into the temple. So this idea of both moral purity and integrity and physical cleanness on the outside, those two were very intertwined. And so David could say, I wash my hands, I clean myself up, but I do it in my innocence because I don't hang out with the evildoers and the wicked. And therefore, I will go to your altar, O Yahweh, so that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and declare all your wonders. So this is all part of David's orthodoxy, part of approaching God, Old Testament or new. Paul says, when you take your prayers to God, let your petitions be known with thanksgiving. That's a vital part of what it is to approach God, is to be thankful for the fact that God provides for you, that God exists, which is the only reason you exist, and that he's kept you alive another day, or given you food another day, or given you clothing another day, or kept you in your right mind another day, that he is providing for you all the time. And because he is providing for you every moment that you're alive, every breath that you take, therefore you should never approach him without thankfulness in your heart, regardless of how difficult your circumstances are, regardless of how rough you may find life to be at this particular moment. If you are delivered out of those difficulties, it is because God himself has delivered you. So no matter what the circumstances, thankfulness towards God is just part of a proper theology, a proper orthodoxy. You don't just rush into God's presence and say, give me stuff. And you don't rush into God's presence and say, me, me, let's talk about me. Haven't I done all these great works? Haven't I Cast out demons in your name, haven't I? Me, me, me. Instead, a genuine orthodox approach to God includes thanksgiving. And so David says, very rightly, very theologically sound, I will proclaim 
with the voice of thanksgiving. David is saying, I'm going to go into your temple, I'm going to go to your altar, and I'm going to lift my voice in thanks to you. People will hear it, people will see me as the king, proclaiming thanksgiving to you and declaring all your wonders. Declaring the goodness of God, declaring the loving kindness of God, declaring the grace of God, and declaring how many times God continued to provide for Israel and deliver Israel and had now set David up as king over Israel. He had a lot that he could proclaim that were all the wonders of God. So thankfulness toward God and then speaking well of God which is what the Old Testament word translated blessing means. Bless the Lord. That word means to speak well of God, to lift up God. So he says, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go in and proclaim your thanksgiving, and I'm going to declare all your wonders. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house. A minute ago I said, David, to approach the altar has to be in the temple. That's what he's saying here. I love the habitation of your house. That's the temple there in Jerusalem, the place where your glory dwells. David is saying, I love the temple of God. Now this, by the way, stands in contrast with, I hate the assembly of the evildoers, but I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. This is all part of David's argument about his integrity. O oh Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where thy glory dwells. Do not take my soul away along with the sinners, nor my life with the men of bloodshed. I hate the assembly of the evildoers. I will not sit with the wicked. I will wash my hands in innocence. Therefore, when the time comes for you to judge the sinners, treat me separately. I don't want to be judged with the sinners. I think we could all agree with that. I don't want to be judged with the sinners. When I move from this life into the next, I hope that God looks at me through the lens of the finished work of Jesus Christ and that he never brings up all the sin that he says he has forgotten and cast as far as the east is from the west and thrown it into the sea of his forgetfulness. I hope that that never comes up and that I'm never counted among the evil of this world. And so because I want that so badly, I walk out my life in a way that I hope is pleasing to him. That's what David's saying, and that should also be true of us, that we walk out our lives in a way that reflects the fact that we love God, that we trust God, and that we don't want to be judged with the sinners of this world. And when the time comes for God to wipe out the men of bloodshed, David says, I don't want to be counted in that group. Do not take my soul away along with sinners, nor my life with men of bloodshed, in whose hands, the wicked men, the men of bloodshed, in whose hands is a wicked scheme. These liars are always concocting something, and the things they're concocting come from their wicked hearts. 
and their wicked minds. And David is trying to draw a differentiation between him and the people of God who walk in the integrity of their hearts, of their love for God, of their love of the temple of God. He does not want God to lump everybody together and judge everybody according to the same standard because, as we've seen repeatedly in David's Psalms, he recognizes that he's a sinner. He recognizes his own failure before God. He recognizes that he has been judged by God and even lost a child because of the depth of his rebellion against God. Here, I'll make it easier. Can anybody in this room think of anything you've ever done? Oh, let's make it easier. In the last 48 hours, can you think of anything that you may have done or thought that you know for a fact if God judged you on that basis, it's hell forever for you? <laughs> yes, that was easy. Okay, let's narrow it down. Last 24 hours? Okay, let's narrow it down. 12 hours? Okay, you know what. And because we all know, we all recognize that we are sinful innately. That's a proper anthropology. That's a proper understanding of who we are. A proper theology is that God is holy and cannot look on sin and that he's going to judge sin. And so David is saying, I recognize that, yes, I am a sinner, but what I need from you is redemption. What I need from you is grace. And therefore, because I love you and I love the overarching theology of redemption and grace, for that reason, I walk my life out in a way where there is integrity to the things I do, to how I judge, to how I lead your people, and to how I personally behave myself. Because I don't sit with deceitful men, and I don't go with the pretenders, and I hate the assembly of the evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked, and I will wash my hands in innocence, and I will go about your altar, O Lord, so that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and declare all your wonders, O Lord. I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. So that being the case, do not take my soul away along with sinners, nor my life with men of bloodshed. In whose hands is this wickedness? In whose hands there is wicked scheming and whose right hand is full of bribery? That's why I mentioned it earlier when David or Solomon talks about what it is to be honest, what it is to be forthright, what it is to have integrity. So much of it has to do with judgment and not taking a bribe and having equitable scales, just treating people fairly and rightly for God's sake. But as for me, verse 11, and I think this verse, by the way, should apply to all of us, even as Christians, even though we have been redeemed by the finished work of Jesus Christ, even though we do understand the doctrine, so that we have an orthodoxy to our Christianity, so that we have a biblical grounding to the things that we believe, that ought to lead us to orthopraxy, that ought to lead us to proper behavior and walking out our lives in such a way that the whole rest of the world could look at us and say, he's different. What makes you different than the whole rest of the evil world? Verse 11, but as for me, 
I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. So David recognizes the need for grace. He recognizes the need for redemption. He recognizes that it is God that is the source of both of those. And he loves God, and therefore he walks in a way that demonstrates that he loves God. I got an email a few days ago from someone who was asking questions about salvation by grace, what we believe, what we teach. And one of his questions was, are you among those preachers who say that Christians need to do good works? I was a little taken aback by that question. So I wrote back to him and quoted Ephesians 2.10. Turn to the book of Ephesians for a moment so that I can show you that this notion of orthodoxy leading to orthopraxy is New Testament as well. It's not just something that David had to do under the law. But go to Ephesians 2. You probably all know Ephesians 2. At verse 1 it says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That would be David's assembly of evildoers, or the wicked people. He says, you used to be among them. You were just like all the rest of them. Among them, says verse 3, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of our minds, and that we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So salvation, according to proper Pauline theology here, proper doctrine, sound teaching, Paul says, you're not saved by your works. You can only be saved by the grace of God, but the result will be good works. Mm -hmm. I have tried to draw this differentiation for the 21 years that I've been standing here. The reality is your good works don't get you saved. They are not the basis of your salvation. However, if you are saved, you will do good works. Proper Biblical understanding includes good works, that Christians will behave differently than the world, that we won't be involved in evil works, that we won't be together with the assembly of the evildoers and the wicked. We will be different in the way we walk out our lives. I'll use that word orthopraxy again. 
And here is Paul saying to the church at Ephesus that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. So even the good works you do, you don't get credit for because those are the good works that God prepared for you ahead of time. He provided a savior for you ahead of time. And then he provided a life for you ahead of time, behavior for you ahead of time, and good works for you to walk in ahead of time. So whether we're talking about David in the Psalms, whether we're talking about Paul in the New Testament, this idea of loving God, changing your walk, changing your behavior, changing your inward integrity, that is standard biblical thinking and teaching. Proper theology leads to proper walk proper behavior, proper life. Back in Psalm 25. That was a good answer to his email, by the way. Pardon me? That was a good answer to his email. Oh, <laughs> well, that was my first thought. As soon as I read his email, I went, wait a minute, what about Ephesians 2? Yep. So, verse 11, Psalm 26, verse 11. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity Redeem me, be gracious to me. My foot stands in a level place. In the congregations, I shall bless the Lord. That phrase, my foot stands in a level place, means not on a hill, not on rocky soil. Remember at the beginning of this psalm, I said that the phrase without wavering means without his foot slipping. That's the picture word. He wraps it up by saying, my foot will not slip because I stand in a level place. And in fact, in the psalm that we'll look at next week, he uses that phrase yet again when talking about his enemies and saying that because he trusts in God, he is planted. I remember, I do, I remember. <laughs> I remember years ago hearing a preacher use the word rigor when describing faith in God. And I've used the word ever since because I can't find a better descriptive word for what we stand on. I don't trust things that are slippery. I don't trust things that may or may not support me. I don't trust things that I'm likely to fall off of. And I mean that both literally and theologically. I like finding things in the Bible that I know I can stand on because they have rigor, because they're proven, because they're tested, they've been tried. And you can plant your feet on it with full confidence that this is the answer and it's the only answer. For instance, faith in Jesus Christ for our salvation. There is no alternative. So then that is rigorous. That is something I can stand on. This past Sunday, I said that faith is standing on the word of God and counting it as more true than your circumstances. That's because the word of God has rigor to it. It has triedness. It has demonstrated itself. It has proven itself. And that's what David is getting at when he says, my foot stands in a level place. It's flat. It has rigor to it. I can trust it. My foot's not going to slip off it. So I am confident in God 
And because I am confident in God in the congregations, I will bless the Lord. And I just told you that this word bless means speak well of, to lift up, to extol the virtues of. I love the temple of God, he says. I love the altar of God. I love the house of God where the glory of God dwells. And I will stand in the congregations that are assembled in that house. And I will proclaim with a voice of thanksgiving. And I'll declare all your wonders. And I'll speak well of you in the congregations. I shall bless the Lord. All of that collectively is David's argument for his own integrity. That he walks according to what he says he believes. And really, that's the summation of this psalm. Don't just talk the talk. Walk the talk. If you say you believe in Christ, then act like it. If you say you're a Christian, be one. And as this world continues to get progressively crazier and more evil, and as they continue to circle the drain, the few of us who still have confidence in God have to stand on the very rigorous word of God and say, this is what it says, even if the whole rest of the world disagrees. You have to walk in your integrity and walk according to what the word of God says. That's what David did. That's what Paul did. That's what all we as Christians are called to do. Got it? Got it, man. Questions? One of these weeks, I should say, okay, answers. <laughs> Anybody got any answers? I could, I could use some answers. All right, then. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.